Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here at the Wrangle Conference, the guest of Claude Era, who's sponsoring our series here. And I am with Drew Conway, who is the founder and CEO of Alluvium. It's good to be with you, Sam. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, so you just did a really interesting presentation that I tweeted a little bit about. Why don't we take a minute to have you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. So I am the founder and CEO of Alluvium. We're a New York-based company that builds what we call human-centered AI for the industrial industry. And what that means for us is we build uh, software products that exist at the intersection of complex machine data. So think streaming data from an oil refinery, uh, data from automated robotic systems, and uh, human knowledge. One of the things that I can even talk a little bit about in the context of what I just presented here at Wrangle is, you know, me, my career has really been one that has kind of moved me through a path of working alongside and building software tools for people who need to make decisions from data. And Alluvium, in many ways, is a kind of culmination of a lot of thinking I've had over my career as to how best to extract maximum value from these complex streams of data and present a human being, you know, a man or woman who's working inside an industrial operation with the right information at the right time to make the best decision. So the company is just about two years old. Uh, we work primarily in what we call process manufacturing, so sort of distinct from discrete manufacturing. And the way to, the way that I like to describe it is like discrete manufacturing is screwing in bolts and 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 rivets, and process manufacturing is typically you know pipes and boilers, things like yep. that. Um, and the reason that we focus on on that second half is is our approach to learning is really one where this continuous nature of information is more well-suited for, for what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Particularly interesting because I've been spending a lot of time researching industrial AI or industrial applications of AI, and we're in the midst of a series of podcasts on industrial AI, although we're connecting here in right. a totally different context. <laughs> and so uh, why don't we jump into that Tell us about your presentation here at Wrangle. Sure. So, yes. Yeah, so, the early part of my career, when I first started a career, was actually as a what was called then a computational social scientist inside the U.S. intelligence community. And so, uh, this was a few years before data science was a profession, a sort of well-known profession. And, and I think probably the people who were doing the work that I was doing then now are probably all data scientists. Mm-hmm. But what my job primarily was was to think about how to build statistical programming and statistical software tools to support decision making inside the intelligence loop and basically that that meant my work was split primarily into two big halves one half was what i would call principally basic research so things that are more academic in nature i spent a lot of time thinking about graph theoretic models of uh, network change and network um, networks moving over time. The other half of my work was sort of much more tactical in nature. So it was really building custom software and even kind of documentation systems for taking in a very wide breadth of different kinds of data. So all the way from space-based assets and satellite imagery to signals intelligence to ground sensing to an unstructured written report from some PFC in the field and being able to kind of 
distill all that information down in a reasonably timely way to help you know a sergeant major who's in the field and mm -hmm. needs to know whether that they go you know knock on the store is the person they're looking for going to be there if they go inspect this this shack will they find the weapons that they're looking for yeah so it was anyway it was a, it was a fascinating um, place to kind of start my career and what I spoke about this morning was really a lot of the lessons that I learned from that with respect to how data science as a sort of profession and as industry can kind of get wrapped around the axle on bias and how to overcome that and how to help yourself as a professional data scientist or really how to help the folks around you better leverage and use the tools that you have because everybody brings bias mm -hmm. to their work and, and I think my experience in the Intel community was one where I was sort of acutely aware of that because the stakes were relatively high. Right, right. Interesting. So yeah, one of the one of the silly questions that I had for you was, did you have to get your slides approved by the... Uh... <laughs> no, 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 no. So, yeah, you know, all things in, in, in my slides were, uh, you know, s sufficiently generalized that there's no need to do that. But, you know, one thing that I did mention in the talk, which is, is, is sort of an interesting context for being a data science inside the Intel community, is sort of your access to tools. Yep. You know, so we, you know, we, the sort of collective community of people doing this work, we think about just this ready access to the latest and greatest open source tools and that, right. you know, as soon as Google or Facebook or whomever kind of open source this great new thing, well, let's figure out a way to play with it and we're going to get it into our workflow. That is absolutely not the case when the equipment that you're working, you know, the, literally the computers that you're doing your work on are classified pieces of equipment. And so one of the stories that I told in my talk was one where I was trying to overcome this motivated reasoning as an example of how that problem of motivated reasoning can actually be addressed through a kind of deliberate technical approach to analyzing data. And in this case, we were, we were looking at satellite imagery. The context here was the sort of never-ending search for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You know, the timing here is sort of mid-2000s, 2005, yep. 2006. And as I mentioned in my talk, there I had the opportunity to work with these two, what we would call IMINT, or image intelligence analysts, who had been working for, I mean, by the time I got to know them, I think they'd been past their 30-year mark. And so these were, these were people with a tremendous amount of expertise. Mm -hmm. And they were tasked with analyzing image, images, satellite images taken of Iraq, and try to identify any places where you might see weapons of mass destruction. And one of the projects that we worked on, which they themselves asked for, was their intuition was that there were no, they were never going to find stuff. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, because of this issue of motivated reasoning, they were continuing to be asked to just look and look and look at no end. And so we basically came up with this novel idea. It's like, well, why don't we try to automate this process so that you can, in aggregate, show by automatically analyzing images and using very simple classification to try to identify where, oh, if and there are any indications of suspicious activity, if that actually exists. Because, yeah. you know, two men doing this on their own, they could be at this for the rest of their careers. Right. And so... The reason I bring this up, because it ultimately became a really interesting exercise in trying to get new tools in the building. Uh -huh. So, uh, you know, one of my greatest achievements, I think, as a, <laughs> in this job was actually not technical, but bureaucratic, in that I was able to actually get you know, sci a 
early versions of Scientific Python and OpenCV installed on a classified machine so that we could write a simple classifier to try to help these guys out. And ultimately, the, <laughs> the success was that, A, we were able to do that, but B, we were able to show in aggregate that there was really nothing there. And ultimately, we were yeah. able to use that as a way to kind of dish, dislodge these guys from having to continue to pursue something that ultimately they knew they were not going to find. And do you think that's changed at all, uh, the ability to get new technologies, open source, into these environments over, you know, since you left that Yeah, I, world, I, I think it's improved quite a bit, you know, and it's funny to think, I mean, 10 years is, is a long time in the sort of tech yeah. uh, timeline, and there, you know, large bureaucratic institutions like the, the military and Department of Defense yeah. are, are always trailing indicators, but one of the things that I've been very impressed by with the folks that I know that continue to work in this space is their sort of progression to being able to bring new tools in. Right. You know, there, right. there's part of this which is there. I think there are better tools available commercially, and mm -hmm. so that's always been an easy way to acquire new stuff. But having a not only an appetite but a, a, a sort of avenue for bringing in open source tools. I mean, I know even even um, AWS works with the Intel community now and creates. You know, distributed compute for them to actually use some of these tools, yep. and it's, I think it's been obviously a real boon for their work, but I think more importantly for recruiting and retention for yeah. high, you know very talented people. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned motivated reasoning in the context of the story of pulling technology into uh, one of the agencies. Tell us, you know, what that means, and and uh, spend some time talking about the. The other biases that you talked sure. about in your talk. Yeah, so because that was the bulkier your yeah, presentation yeah. was these biases. Yeah. Right? So motivated reason is the easy one, right? We see it all the time. It's basically I, I ask you a question because I I want you to give me the answer that I already know, right? <laughs> and motivated reasoning is a particularly sticky wicket when it comes to intelligence gathering uh, because policymakers will oftentimes have predetermined policy biases. Right. And so your job, and as I mentioned in my talk, you know, particularly if you're working in the civilian intelligence, you know, principally the CIA, you have one customer. Your customer is the president and, by extension, the White House. Yeah. And so you know, motivated reasoning can be very problematic if you have a customer with high levels of motivated reasoning. And there are a number of examples of that throughout history. You know, I spoke about the sort of search for weapons of mass destruction in the early part of the 2000s, but there are lots of other biases, right? And, and, I, and I think the next stop and, and the one that I mentioned uh, during the talk is this, this idea of confirmation bias, which in many ways I think is sort of the you know, the, the, the cousin or the, the direct relative of motivated reasoning, which is maybe I don't already have a predetermined policy outcome that I'd like to see, but I sure have a lot of bias in accepting, you know, analysis that confirms a thing that I already think is true, right? And, and that is, again, this incredibly problematic lens through which to observe information that in and of itself is very hard to collect. You know, I think in the, in the context of data science, people often talk about bias in the data generating process. Mm -hmm. And it's true, it's everywhere. You know, yeah. it, if you work at a big social media company, you have access to a tremendous amount of data, but some engineer along the way chose to collect that clickstream. You right. know, that wasn't, that was done by a product manager who decided that they wanted to track a specific kind of action. Right. And that's bias. Right. When you move into a kind of Intel context where there's policy decisions that need to be made off of it, you have an extremely limited set of kinds of information that you can get. And oftentimes that information is 
has brought to you in sort of opportunistic way. You know, yeah. you know, one of the this is well after my time in the Intel community, but of course after you know after the raid at Osama bin Laden's base camp, a lot of the the most valuable stuff that came out of that were all the laptop computers and information that they really gleaned there. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously that data is highly biased, and that was a that was right. a collection of opportunity. There was no there was no like A B test and no experiment right. to try to identify <laughs> which would be the best pathway to do that. Yeah, and so confirmation bias becomes extremely dangerous if you have sudden access to a new data set that you didn't already have and without taking a deliberate approach to analyzing it may reinforce that bias in a very dangerous way. The last one that I mentioned during the talk, and this is sort of where I left the talk and I think is something that we as a community really need to think about in the context of our work today now, is sort of flat out denial. That Mm -hmm. we we as data scientists and we really as sort of technicians because I wouldn't bucket this only for people who you know write statistical code right all all folks who build tools with software have this attachment to both information that is biased and imperfect and tools that are you know sort of uh, approximations of, of good ways of estimating what we think is occurring in the real world, but the real world's really hard to measure. Right. And so this kind of trifecta of imperfection means that everything that we do should be, you know, fraught with caveats and considerations for all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But what that means is that we are, we accept the fact that we open the door to people who will try to poke holes and deny that's true. Even if we can make a very confident assessment of something and we can show it to be true, but because of good hygiene around doing data science, it's very easy to poke holes in that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, I think part of what we need to think about as a community is, well, how do we prepare ourselves for that? How do we get better at communicating this kind of, you know, these foibles in our, in our work that we cannot pull away? Mm-hmm. But also, how do we, how do we get the consumers have that information to be more willing to accept and more educated to a certain extent about that reality. I mean, one of the things that I mentioned during my talk was, you know, this, the election in 2016, the U.S. election in 2016, I think was a great example where people just had this expectation that, you know, you get whoever has the higher percentage of winning is the winner, mm-hmm. right? Because we have this kind of horse race mentality. But... Anybody who's ever been to a casino would know that if you, if there was a game at the casino that gave you, you know, 25% out of winning, you would never leave that game. Yeah. You know, and that's essentially the game that we ended up playing, and we just got the one in four chance that we didn't expect to see. Right. And I think part of that is this, you know, people just need to get a better understanding of, and it's it, part of it, I think, is sort of becoming more numerate, but I think part of it is just we, we're responsible for that. The data community is responsible for kind of conditioning folks to understand that better. And I think folks like Nate Silver do a great job, and there's mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of success in the world with that. But we need more of it. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's it strikes me that it's a bit of a fine line between you know denial and maybe it's not a fine, maybe it's a gulf. But you know the, you know there's denial on in, on one hand, and then there's you know challenging mm-hmm. the results. And I think you know we need to be as a community be open to having our results being challenged because the flip side of that is this idea that you know data and quote unquote AI is magic right, right? and whatever it says that's what we got to do right. right and that's a whole 
different. Just, you know, that poses a whole different set yeah, of challenges. I totally agree, and I think you know we are we are right at the beginning of what I think will be a very interesting you know future, immediate future for you know sort of general consumer because it seems like the technology trend is to move in the direction of effectively using black boxes for right. solutions. And that means that we accept the fact that it will be very difficult to understand why a system makes a choice. Mm -hmm. And I think we are opening ourselves up to a really difficult set of circumstances that will very likely come sooner or later where, you know, intel you know intelligent software systems, whether you want to call it AI or sort of a general class of just not decision support systems, but decision making systems mm -hmm. that we don't understand. And, right. you know, I think the danger now is that in some sense we've moved so quickly in the direction of having access to tools like this that the education component has just not kept up. And, and I think the flip side of this, which is in many ways a compliment to it, is I also think that there's an unnecessary amount of fear, right? I think now we have this pendulum swinging back the other direction where you have folks creating a kind of anxiousness around the arrival of tools like this and systems like this that doesn't really meet with the reality of how that technology trend is doing and so right. consumers are being conditioned now to not trust ATM machines and to not right. trust subway platform subway doors that open and close on their own and I think this friction now is really I mean, literally starting to heat up in a sense that again we're the folks that build these systems and I think because of that it's partly our responsibility to be able to go out and, and try to talk to folks and say you know, this is this is how this works. Mm -hmm. You know, fine. We don't. I think we lack, in some sense, good champions for this stuff. Right? Mm -hmm. We have lots of really good entrepreneurs and technologists who can build this stuff. We need to find our champions who can actually kind of go out there and, and try to help folks understand how this is going to change their their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, for good and and potentially in ways that we don't even understand yet. Yeah, yeah. I've got to ask. The ATM and subway door, are those yeah. specific examples. No, no, I'm just thinking. Okay, that, you, know, they, you know, you hear, you hear, you know, all these, you know, a lot yeah. of kind of fear, uncertainty, and doubt right. around right. stuff. And so, you know, they, actually, these would be more examples from my personal life, where I'm, you know, asked by family members, you know, when when am I going to show up to the ATM and it's going to be hacked, or when am I going to show up, you know, or autonomous vehicles going to like turn on their owners, yeah. you know, everybody, you know, people have seen you know, Fast and Furious movies, and they're like, is this how things are going to work? And I don't know. But I also know that that future is a little bit further away than Hollywood is right, presenting, right. right? And there's a long way to go before we actually have to start thinking about that. And I think we, have, because there is time, part of our job as a community is to try to fill that, that information gap in a little bit. The speaker after you said that in kind of, running through similar sets of issues, mm. uh, more applied societally, gave the, the audience the advice that, you know, as you're thinking about these systems you're building, think about the degree to which it resembles an episode of Black Mirror. Right, right? yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that, you know, if there's, if, if there's a useful rubric, that's probably a really good one, right? Like, if, if, if you start to bleed into Black Mirror territory, right. then you probably have made some, some choice that uh, you might want to reconsider. Yeah, and for those that don't know Black Mirror, probably the best analogy is like a British version of the Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a British version of the Twilight Zone, but is you know the Twilight Zone and very modern. Yeah, dealt with lots of different kinds of societal issues. Black Mirror tends to focus on technology yep. as the kind of specific or, or con consistent thread. And uh, well, I'm a big fan. So. Yeah, same here. Same here. So what 
What are the specific, you know, the, the top three things that you want folks to take away from your presentation mm. and, and not just take away, but like go do? Right. I mean, I think the first one, you walk out of my talk and you go back to your, you know, maybe tomorrow or this afternoon, you go back to your desk at the office and sit down and think about how confirmation bias, motivated reasoning and uh, opportunities for denial exist in the current decision-making workflow in, in your company or your organization and and how your own work may be contributing to that or helping to stave it. And, and really, you okay. know, not, not to be overly negative, but, you know, I think that there is, everybody can think of examples of this. And I run a company, I can think of examples. I mean, I'm, I have a lot, I'm heavily motivated to sell my products and that will impact my decision-making. And I have told my team, I have high expectation of them to step in and say, well, hold on, Drew, like, why are you, why do you think that that's a good choice to make? And yeah. this would be specifically in product building, even model selection for some of the, you know, algorithms that we may choose. You know, this, this stuff is, this stuff is not, you know, abstract, right? right. These are real right. examples. And I think the second one, you know, which is, I think, maybe more fun is, you know, go out and seek the first hand, you know, go try to try to meet folks and see systems where this kind of intersection of biased data and decision making exists in your community, you know, yeah. local government in, you know, in, in your local community organizing, you know, this stuff is everywhere. Right. And one of the things that's nice about kind of professionally applying statistical methods and computing to this in this context is that you can bring your own expertise to potentially a much smaller scale problem that impacts many many more people's lives and the lives of people that you are your neighbors and you know what i've had an, i've had a great opportunity in my life to to work with you know the government in new york city and and work with local communities there and you know i was i was i was a co-founder of an organization called datakind which really kind of grew out of this really this question of how do you how do you bridge the gap between talented data scientists, engineers, and product managers, and a social sector that has great data, really interesting problems, but doesn't have access to those talented data scientists and engineers? And Datakind exists to do that. And you know, you can go sign up on Datakind's website. That's one way to do it. But I think an easier way to do it is just you know, show up to a community meeting, see what see what the board of ed is talking about. You know, they're making decisions about what what data to collect on students. You can help, you know, help right. them make better choices. And the final one I'll say, which was the final, the sign of kind of call to action of my talk, which is, you know, if you're in a position of hiring people, which I'm sure many of your listeners are, you ought to really think hard about hiring veterans. I had an opportunity, as I said, to, to, to work alongside active service folks in, in the military. And they're some of the most brilliant, dedicated, just, you know, technically competent folks that even now I've ever had a chance to work with. And I think there are many underrepresented groups in technology, and I think veterans is a group that people don't talk a lot about. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the transition from a career as a, signals, you know, a, a signal analyst on a, sub, on a yeah. submarine to working as a data scientist is actually a lot narrower than certainly folks in, that hire technologists think. And part of the issue is that a lot of people who come out of out of the service and then try to you know transition into 
a professional job, they just don't even know that these jobs exist. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I've worked with an organization in New York called the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America mm-hmm. to try to build, you know, access you know, just to kind of make bring these two communities together. Right, and again, right. you know, I think this is you know, this is something that I do in New York, here in San Francisco. These all these organizations exist, and I would encourage folks in all their communities to That's to right. try to work and do that. Yeah. How do the bi- the biases that you talked about express themselves in your customers when mm. they're trying to apply industrial AI right. and and data driven decision making? What how do you see them show up? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, we see a lot of the the bias coming from customers at a point now where the buzz around AI and machine learning in the context of their work. So, you know, I know you're in, in you're doing this series. I mean, the industry 4.0, you know, digital transformation, all these kind of term terms of art. Basically, what that means is, okay, we're not a software company, but we believe that we need to transform part of our business to rely more heavily on data and software because that's what we think we need to do. But those are just words. And so when you get to actual practical implications, you start talking to folks who, you know, their job is to make sure that the oil refinery has no safety issues ever again. How do we do that? And because there's a potentially very large white space around what AI and machine learning can actually do to solve that problem, it's very difficult for that, you know, site coordinator or plant manager to think creatively about how to solve those problems. Mm -hmm. And so the biases that we see is, you know, particularly in the beginning, the the first year of, of Alluvium, the bias that we saw is that when you, when you try to rely on customers' creativity, they come back and say I don't understand this I don't I don't see how it could possibly help my work because there's no real tangible connection to all of this fancy math and compute that you want to throw at it and how this translates to my workforce getting home safely every day and my facility producing at maximum yield and so I think for us the journey that we've gone through as a company is actually trying to figure out how to more narrowly go after a set of really a set of metrics and kind of value uh, uh, values that can apply to answering that question because the denial bias that's mm-hmm. like <laughs> I'm going to poke holes in this because yeah. it's easier for me to say no than it is to try to do the work to understand this right you know it's hard to it's hard to fault a customer for that yeah right? they're you know the, our customers are folks who have worked 15 20 25 even 30 years you know in an, in an oil rig on a you know in a manufacturing floor in a power station like software is not their job right software is my job right. so i should be able to help them with that and so how i can kind of minimize the gap in that is 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 a way of minimizing that bias to try to help them understand and connect the dots between the work they do every day the service that we can provide and then how that makes that work better mm. yeah, interesting comments around kind of the role the role of software i think we throw around ideas like software is eating the world right. and you know you have big industrial companies like ge and ford saying that they kind of committed themselves to become software companies right right and so you know on the one hand i think those you know i, I guess maybe i'm a cheerleader for the industry and yeah. say hey you know we you know these companies you know everyone at these companies need to start thinking a little bit more right. at least like a software person right. in some way 
but you know you're right one of the things that has come up repeatedly in talking about the industrial AI in particular is how you know you are you know fundamentally trying to pair you know something that's like at the cutting edge of you know software and technology with you know someone who's you know, been working in a particular, you know, working with a, a machine, right. you know, a CNC machine, yep. you know, or a, uh, you know, a boiler or something right. like that. And they know it's like they're the CNC whisperer, yeah. right? That thing makes a certain noise. They know that it's going to need some care and feeding yep. and they know how to do it. Yep. And I think it's an interesting responsibility for us as technologists to try to figure out how to bridge these worlds. Yeah. Uh, you know, at Alluvium, we, we, we really think about this as a first-class part of what we're trying to do. You know, we we have you know a set of company values, and, and one that we we really hold dear is this idea: of we want to put people first. And I think you know that's that's sort of easy to say. And in the context of what our work, what that means is, I have I have no idea what a CNC whisperer knows, and I'll never know. Like I will, I could I could start today. And work yeah. through the remaining of my career and never be as good as that. I mean, we've met people yeah. who who are those 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 folks. I mean, single single individuals working in massive multinational companies that themselves have institutional knowledge that is probably invaluable to those organizations. And so, to build software to support that, I think the the admission that you have to make as a technologist is that you'll never know what mm-hmm. they know. And so, how can you build tools that shift the cognitive responsibility of that individual away from having to cons- constantly be, you know, checking that CNC machine and pulling data off of it so that it knows exactly that series of vibrations or, or heat or spin that may indicate imminent failure to providing them with information in a timely manner that draws them to that, you know, opportunity to make a choice, to make a decision, right. and then they can get back to the work that they're really good at. And I think, in some senses, it's just a matter of increasing cognitive margin. You know, there's, there's this, you know, this, this upward slope of data, right, constantly everywhere. And I think in the industrial space, which is, is largely not talked about outside of those kind of professional conferences, is just as steep or, or more, you know. But the labor dynamics in those, in those industries are, you know, fixed or shrinking. Yeah. And so now you have this, this very problematic asymmetry between humans having to understand and, and deal with data and make decisions and systems that are just drowning them yeah. in information. So for us, the simplest way to bridge that gap is, well, let's leverage that expertise that they have so that that, that like shifting of cognitive responsibility for the routine, boring, observational stuff can go to the computer and the you know imminent high value need to know now decisions can go to those experts and leverage that and really stitch that stuff together right right awesome well what's the best way for folks to check out what you're doing track you down engage with you yeah so you know websites alluvium.io that's a-l-l-u-v-i-u-m dot io (laughs) alluvium the easiest way to engage with me, you know, I'm I'm on Twitter at Drew Conway, C O N W A Y. I'm I'm pretty easy. To, I'm a pretty easy Google. So you know, I I, uh, I I answer I answer my emails. I like to I like to engage with folks. So if you have any questions about the company, we are um, we are hiring, as I think everybody is. So you know, for us, the the nucleus of, of our company is really around data science and engineering. But I think yeah. with a specific bent on streaming data and 
you know, semi-supervised and unsupervised learning. So if that's the kind of stuff with, you know, high volumes of streaming data that gets you excited, we'd love to hear from you. Great. All right, well, thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you, Sam. It was a lot of fun. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued support of this podcast. For the notes for this episode, to ask any questions or to let us know how you like the show, leave a comment on the show notes page at twimlai.com slash talk slash 39. Thanks again to our sponsor for the Wrangle Conference series, Cloudera. To learn more about Cloudera and the company's data science workbench family of products, visit them at cloudera.com. And be sure to tweet to them at at Cloudera, C-L-O-U-D-E-R-A, to thank them for their support of this podcast. If you're interested in joining our meetup, you can register for that at twimlai.com slash meetup. And don't forget to sign up for the newsletter at twimlai.com slash newsletter. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.